Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Holly Fortier is a Cree Dene leader, educator, documentary filmmaker, and speaker from Fort McKay, First Nation, Alberta. Through her business, Nisto Consulting, Holly has done Indigenous awareness training across Canada. She says when she shares the history of Indigenous people in our country, her listeners finally get it. Holly tells a story of new beginnings and optimism, and I found my conversation with Holly immensely hopeful, and I hope you will too, especially now in the light of the news about the Kamloops Residential School mass burial site that has broken all of our hearts. This conversation with Holly was recorded before that news broke, or we would have talked about it. My name is Karen Stiller. Please email me directly at senioreditor at faithtoday.ca to receive a copy of the July-August issue of Faith Today magazine, where we do talk about it. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. So Holly, you wrote this wonderful column for our May-June Faith Today and our Witness column. And in it, you share about your journey as a First Nations Christian and woman in Canada. And you share also about this little bit of the story of your mom. And I wondered if we could start there today. Thank you, Karen. It was really great to contribute to Faith Today and share our story. I just love sharing my mom's story. You know, we have been really negligent in Canada on sharing you know, the true story of Indigenous people in Canada. And we really romanticize this one view of Indigenous way of knowing and being. And that's exactly my mom's story. You know, she lived entirely off the land. She practiced traditional way of life, which means hunting, harvesting, gathering from the land. There was no store. So could you imagine living off the land, all your food, shelter, clothing, tools, toys, medicines, everything came from the land. And she didn't speak a word of English. And she was deeply loved. And, you know, we've really kind of focused the story of Indigenous people, romanticized it, looked at that. Uh, Most of our education has been on that. But there was a government policy within the Canadian Indian Act that was based really on a racist ideology that, you know, we need to separate Canada from the First Nation people. And so the best way they thought to assimilate the Indians, air quote, was to take the children and raise the children. So they opened up 139 Indian residential schools in Canada. They were operated by church organizations, and it was the RCMP that started to go to the communities and take the children by force And it was a law. So if there was a knock at the door, you had to surrender your children, which I cannot even imagine as a parent. So the government, the churches and the RCMP, they were all in it together. So really, those were the oppressors for Indigenous people. So my mom was living in Fort Mackay, First Nation. We're in northern Alberta. We're Cree and Dene in my community. And the RCMP came to the community. And it was Christmas time. And the river was frozen, so they traveled by dog team back in that day. And they came and took my mother from her family, from her community, by force, kicking, screaming. It was very emotional. And the RCMP took my mother, who was six years old at the time, my auntie, who was eight, and the little auntie, who was four years old, by force, and they took them And I remember this old man saying to me, 
I watched when they took your mom and the three little girls. I was a little boy and I watched and we had no idea where they went and they never returned home again. And we were instructed after that, if you ever see anybody coming down the river again, make sure you run and hide because they're going to take you too. So do you see how this anger and this hatred really develop between the cultures? Well, my mom ended up going to Gruard Indian Residential School, which is like another world away, you know, totally removed. Home could not contact her. She couldn't contact home. And she spent the next 13 years at Gruard Indian Residential School. Now, the stories that we hear that come out of residential school are of neglect and abuse. And the the stories that I hear from my mother are exactly that. And as a matter of fact, um, I, I'm a filmmaker as well, and I did a documentary on my mom's story. And it was really challenging, you know, as a daughter to be able to share the story. But it's such an important story for Canadians to understand, because in order to move forward, we need to know where we come from. So my mom spent the next 13 years there. There was no teachers. There was no formal education. It was one of extreme neglect and abuse. But one of the worst things that happened was when she was 18 years old, the funding runs out. So they actually put you on a bus and your bus ticket actually takes you to Edmonton. So my mom gets off on the streets of Edmonton. And can you imagine being 18 years old, having no education, no self-esteem, no money, no support? My mom said that most of those girls and boys that got off on the streets of Edmonton ended up as skid row casualties. Most of them commit suicide. Um, They were getting charged with vagrancy. Vagrancy means they have no job, no home. They don't know the court system, of course, and it was a nightmare. And so these are our parents. And so how do we move forward? You know, I always say this is not our history. This is really our story of the legacy of Indian residential schools, the Canadian Indian Act, and the policies within that. Yeah, yeah, like you were you were raised by a woman who survived it. And what really mm-hmm. struck me, Holly, when you were sharing was the fact that your mom was deeply loved and mm-hmm. and robbed of that love uh, and being raised in in her own family. So I'm wondering how did that ripple down to you? I mean, obviously you're keenly aware and your life's work is a lot about uh, educating Canadians and the world about this, but what was it like in your family growing up? Did your mom know how to be a mom? Yeah, and that's a really good point because, you know, how do they parent? My mom was very fortunate. Like people are always asking me, what happened to your mother? How did she get out of that when she got to the streets of Edmonton? My dad actually was a geologist up in the Athabasca oil sands when there was nothing up there but the boreal forest. And so he would actually hire First Nation men because they knew the land so well to do all the surveying. And they told him the stories of the little girls and boys that got taken from their community and went to residential school. So every time he went to Edmonton, he kind of kept an eye out for her. We don't know like the details of when, what, where, how, but my dad found her. And those two had a great love story Mm. and love healed my mom. And my mom became very actively involved in politics 
and she also was an entrepreneur. And she actually opened a home that was the first in Canada for Indigenous youth that was run by Indigenous people, the very first in Canada. So these kids came to us, mostly from foster care and adoption breakdowns that were neglected and abused in those situations. And my mom said, I want to actually just put the culture back in the kids. So we had, we taught the kids how to powwow dance. They sewed and beaded and made regalia. They'd powwow all weekend. And the culture really healed the youth. And we worked with over 2000 youth. And I said to my mom, how did you know that was going to work? You know, this group home situation. And she said, I was just doing the opposite of residential school. I was told my entire life that I was no good that I was a savage. They really beat us for speaking our own language, for like anything cultural. And I want to do the opposite. I want to put the culture back in kids and therefore it was healing. And we saw the restoration in the, in the children. And so I was very fortunate. My mom really, you know, kept us connected to our culture. It was really important to embrace who we are as Indigenous people. Both my parents really kept the culture alive in our family. Yeah, you wrote about that in the witness column. And that really struck me. You said your mother wanted to put the culture back in her kids. And you've just mentioned that as well, and how she worked in that home, doing the opposite, which is so powerful, a thought. Tell me more about that. How did your mom put the culture back in you? Yeah, so I was very fortunate because there was a lot of people in our life. Most First Nations don't have high schools. And so education is a really big barrier. My mom realized that education is everything. It's a way to move forward. And so we always used to have young First Nation women from the local reserves come and live with us so that they could attend high school. And they kind of were like our my babysitter. And so I grew up with all these really cool teenage, you know, hip, like girls that were going to high school off reserve. And not only that, we had a lot of older people that practiced traditional ways. And, you know, I remember, especially the people that I was very close to were a couple, an older couple that kind of adopted my mom. And every spring, like right now, the, you know, the earth is warming up and it's so warm and, and, you know, everything's starting to grow and you can smell the earth. And I remember those days because they would move out of their house and they move into a teepee outside their house and they practice traditional way of life, hunting, harvesting, but also just um, teaching about the land. And I remember so many times sitting on the ground around a fire and she'd be cooking bannock and moose meat and she would tell me stories. And, and I remember spending many, many times in their community. So I remember so many times spending time with them. And they were so beautiful. I loved just the way that they taught me of of our cultural values. But the really cool thing about them too is that they were actually ordained ministers. And so, you know, they related a lot of our traditional ways to biblical truths. And they were very well known for always doing every funeral, every wedding, 
being at um, tent meetings and sharing Bible stories to young people, old people, and being really inspirational. So they were a really huge role model in my life. And so we were very fortunate that we had a lot of traditional people as role models. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that is so wonderful. Holly, it's, it feels like education is so important, like how your mom and your community uh, reminded you of who you truly were and are. And also how, like in my school experience growing up, I feel like I learned all the wrong stuff. And so you now are correcting some of that with with your work with Aboriginal awareness training. Tell us a bit more about what you do and why you're doing it. I started a business a few years ago where I was asked in my community, because I started a business a few years ago. I had been working in my community doing a cultural program for mostly industry, but businesses, government agencies, and Because my community is ground zero of the world's third largest oil reserve, we're totally surrounded by industrial development. And so in Canada, there's a lot of policies, especially from Section 35 of the Constitution Act for the duty to consult and accommodate. So when industry does it properly, they build a meaningful, respectful relationship with Indigenous peoples and communities. So my community had me deliver a cultural training that was just like a two-hour program talking about how to work effectively with our community. And so I saw the need for that more and more. And, you know, people kept saying to me, do you know anybody who does the cultural sensitivity workshops, like the Indigenous awareness? And I was like, trying to think of someone who could do it. And I volunteered to do one. I don't know what came over me because I'm not a historian or a political analyst or an Indigenous lawyer. And I don't even like public speaking. So, you know, do you know that public speaking is the number one fear? <laughs> I have heard that. Yeah. <laughs> dying is the number three fear. Like at a funeral, people would rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. Anyway, so I That's did that crazy. one. It was, it was October 2007. And it just took off. I never have ever advertised or marketed or campaigned. And I'm so busy. And I think it's such a beautiful experience because when we talk about culture and diversity, we often look at other people, what we learned in our neighborhoods, our homes, even through the media. But if we take the time to look at other people through their story, it's like we adjust the lens. So that's my hope in my Indigenous awareness training, that we can have a much better relationship than we have historically. We have had 150 years of colonization and unilateral decision-making by the federal government that we ended up in a severed relationship. But I wish that every Indigenous person had the opportunity like I have to deliver Indigenous awareness training to Canada. I've delivered to hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people. And I'm hopeful. We have turned a corner. We honestly have. And you know what, Karen, this is an example of the hope that I have. This conversation that we are having right now this is a sign that we are changing and that we have turned a corner. You know, Holly, I would love to think, and I, I, I don't know if this is true, that the church might have a role to play, that the church might even, you know, be a leader in this, but I don't know if that's the case. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, that's why I feel so privileged to be able to speak to you and to do your podcast and also to have written the article because 
I really want to speak to the church because honestly, the church was the oppressor. Um, you know, when we study missionary work, we know that only two to 5% of indigenous people believe in the Bible and followers of Jesus. We also know that on most first nations on reserve, that only about 1%. And that is because there is that severed relationship with the church. And so honestly, the church has to do something different. And for too long, the church has been saying your way, your tradition, your culture, you need to change it to our way, our tradition, our culture. But who's saying that that is correct? We know when we look at the Bible, right from Genesis to Revelation, it's inclusive. I know that in Genesis 1, 26, it says that we are made in God's image. I am made in God's image. I'm a first nation woman and I'm made in God's image. And then we look in all the way through the Bible and we go to Revelation and Revelation 7, 9. I love the story of John saying that every nation, every tribe, every people, every language is going to be around the throne of God. And so it is inclusive. The Bible is saying that I am welcome and that I belong. But for so long, the church has said, no, you have to get rid of your way, your housing, your music, your traditions, your clothing. And it's just been a crazy, and I've experienced personally, I'm not just saying, oh, this is something I heard. I've experienced it personally, where when I became a Christian, I felt that right up until just some uh, conversation this week. So, you know, we have to do better. It sounds like the exact mistake being made over again. It sounds, you know, to say you you must change, you must leave this behind. I mean, that's exactly what happened to your mom in a way, right? I mean, not to compare. I know what happened to your mom was a horrible, ex- extreme thing, but it sounds like that same sentiment of you must change in order to belong. Yeah, there there are colonial structures that have been in place. And sometimes, you know, we have to look at ourselves and just say, Do we have any residual thoughts of that? They're called unconscious biases. Where do we get this notion that this person is less or this way is different? And we have to look at that. Ever since 2020 was such a hard year for everybody in so many different ways. But I remember, you know, being at home with a stay at home stay in place orders. And I subscribe to news channels. I, you know, I travel a lot for my work. And so I subscribe to news channels and I started watching just like everybody else. We witnessed the knee on the neck of George Floyd. And through that, what I did is I decided that I was going to be a student, even though I do anti-racism work, I decided that I was going to be a student. And I started to write down little quotes, inspiration, teachings, and I became actively anti-racist. I became a student of that. And now is the time because there's conversations about that on television. There's talk shows, there's panels, there's specials, there's audiobooks, there's podcasts like this one. There's so many conversations. And I, I've just leaned into this because, you know, racism is a tough topic. And even a racist will say, I'm not racist because, oh, I'm not wearing a hood, you know, white right. hood. But 
I think that we all have to look at that and just say, do I have unconscious biases? Do I use microaggressions? Because we all do. We all have to admit it. We all do. And I think that now is a time to lean into those conversations, especially within the church and just say, are we being inclusive in first Corinthians where it talks about the body of Christ? If one part is hurting, the whole body hurts. And if we look at, for example, indigenous people without anything less than compassion, and your heart being open, then we better check ourselves and go, okay, what did Jesus want? Like, what, what does the Bible teach us about this? Because we have situations today that the church is still responding that old way through those colonial structures. When you do your Aboriginal awareness training, what is the, if you can narrow it down, what are some of the biggest shifts you see happen in the audience or in your students during those times? Like, is there, I'm sure you get great feedback. Oh my gosh. It's such an honor to do them. Honestly, I kind of walk through the story where I talk about first, you know, indigenous way of knowing and being how we lived on the land. We were well-established. We had everything well in place in our communities that were structured and we were living very well. When Europeans first came over, they couldn't live in one of the harshest countries in the world without assistance. And so they really depended on the First Nation people to provide clothing and food and you know survival. And so Europeans depended on First Nations. That was yeah. the original relationship, right? Yeah. Now, because of things that changed, the arrival of the fur trade, the missionaries, explorers, RCMP, but especially the development of the national dream, the CP rail was going across the nation. And, you know, they pictured that the indigenous people were in the way of development. And so they started to have all these policies in place to get rid of us. And a lot of that was through the contaminated blankets, which was germ warfare, annihilation through violence, and also through the creation of the government policy of the Indian Act. And I think the Indian Act is the biggest learning curve that my participants have. And when I teach about the Indian Act, I actually see people gasp when they see the policies within there where we cannot, starting in 1876, we were uprooted, relocated to Indian reserves. So all of Canada is traditional territory, but Indian reserves are crown land. They're totally different. And there's 3,100 Indian reserves in Canada. I know that sounds like a lot, but it's it's 0.27% of Canada's land mass, so which is very small. And it's crown land. And so they started to uproot us, relocate us to the reserves. They put an Indian agent to monitor all the comings and goings of the Indians on the Indian reserves. And they forced us to stay there. And starvation, diseases loss of traditional way of life took place. So the reserves were the game changer. And then when they start to take children from the reserves to residential school, that just totally affected everything. And when people see that the last residential school in Canada closed in 1996, uh, that we couldn't leave our reserves until um, 1969, this, this is all new. So yeah. we don't have generational wealth. We don't have parents that went to university. We don't have this whole doing well 
in the nation. We have our traditional way of life and we have our strong families still today and we're strong and resilient. We survived all that. But I think when I share with people the Indian Act, the stories of residential school and how recent it all is, that people are so sorry they apologize to me. And I think one of the biggest things is that in Canada, there's 634 First Nations today, um, 60 different language groups, and about 600 of the First Nations are in third world conditions. Poverty is our biggest issue. And wherever you have poverty on the globe, you have a direct link to corruption. And poverty is really challenging. And you and I can look at poverty today in our privileged situation, go, well, get a job or go to school or get out of it. But poverty has a stranglehold. So let's look at poverty in Canada, the same compassion that we do in other countries, because that is our biggest issue. But, you know, the thing is, is that when I think of poverty, I just think the policies that have been in place through the government, through the 150 years of unilateral decision making, through colonization, I just think that it's incredible, the resiliency of Indigenous people that we made it through all that. Yeah, you know, it's a story of strength and not weakness. When you hear it in the right way, it's amazing. Holly, what would be your desire for churches for the typical Canadian congregation that may be just starting to learn or or not even not even to that point yet? I mean, I guess we can mm-hmm. contact you and maybe tap into some of your resources, but what should we be doing now in our communities? Oh my gosh, you just melt my heart, Karen, by asking that because the church for so long didn't have any interest in this. And A really good example of how we move forward, because a lot of people are so kind and they're just wanting to help. And I say, first of all, don't do it. I always say to people, we're not a problem to be solved. For one thing, I would say reconciliation starts with me. And people go, well, what is reconciliation? It's such a buzzword now. So what happened was there was three commissioners. I know them all. They're all lawyers. They went with a whole team across Canada. And they heard 7,000 stories in 300 communities start to finish. And could you imagine hearing 7,000 stories? I was actually at the unpacking of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission It honestly is heartbreaking what happened to our children for generations. And so what they did is they compiled this report and there's 94 calls to action. As a matter of fact, Senator Murray Sinclair, when he presented it, he said, here, Canada, here's the report. Now let's be friends. Mm -hmm. And every time even I say that, I get moved with emotion because I'm just like, that's the gentleness and the openness and the kindness of our traditional peoples. Let's be friends. So I say to Canada, first of all, it says truth and reconciliation. So let's do our own truth finding. You know, wherever you get your books, your audiobooks, podcasts, um, type in keywords and listen and lean into conversations. Start doing that. Go to museums and cultural sites and learn about not just about our history, but our collective history. Do the same with your local parks and recreation, museum, libraries, take courses. 
If there's any cultural event like a powwow or anything like that, maybe just go join in and watch and see how beautiful and rich our culture is. Listen to our music, buy our art. And I, you know, I have friends that are artists that are amazing craftsmen, and they've actually learned their art through their families. And the friends that I know that do art as a business actually have degrees. They went into other careers and their art became so popular. So I asked them, I said, Canadians are wondering, can we purchase your art? Can we buy, wear, use it? Here's the rule. It's yes, 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 please. But buy from inspired Indigenous, not Indigenous inspired. Therefore, you're appreciating the culture, not appropriating the culture. And you know what? There's this whole history It's really important for Canadians to understand this history, but let's not focus on the struggle because whatever you focus on gets bigger. Let's focus on our successes. We have such a rich culture. And you know what? My daughter and I were talking about this the other day. We were like, we have such incredible people in our group of influence, our friends, our communities that are amazing in the area of arts, science, athletics, business. And that's actually what we see. And so let's focus on those successes. And let's stop saying, what can I do for Indigenous people and start saying, what can I learn from Indigenous people? Just to have a shift in the lens and start looking at our first people in a more meaningful and respectful way. My mom was so incredible and such a role model. And I always feel that we all have that person or up to five people that really inspired us. And so, you know, we can all be that one person. We can all be that one person that really is a mentor, that gives good advice, that's a role model. And my mom was really all about, you guys have to go to university. And so I went to university and then my children went to university. And I remember my daughter, she spent many, many years going to law school. And law school is pretty much like trying to do the breaststroke through quicksand, right? So it was hard work. I'm so proud of my girl. And uh, then you have to article on her principal and he has to take you to, to uh, court, legit court for a bar call and go through your personality. And it was a really special day in court that day because the judge said, I will accept Billy, that's my daughter, into the Alberta Court of Law. And it's a big day here today in Canada. And you know why? Her granny is sitting in court and her granny lived as a true Canadian. She's the truest of Canadians, you know, speaking the language, living off the land, um, all of that. But because of a government policy, she was put into a Indian residential school that was so oppressive. And she spent 13 years there. And when she came out, because of the policies within the Canadian Indian Act, she couldn't go to university and she couldn't even hire a lawyer. But today her granddaughter is going to be a lawyer. So it's a big deal. We're moving forward. And the really special thing about that is now my granddaughters are watching this. So we're moving forward. My granddaughters are going to know the stories, but it will be like a painless ghost. And they're the next generation. This is multi-generational work, but we're moving forward. We really are. We're determined. We're strong. We're resilient. 
Holly, thank you. That is uh, so beautiful. Can you end us or send us off with, and I didn't warn you about this, <laughs> but a, ble- a blessing or a, a benediction into new relationship in your traditional tongue? I don't speak my traditional tongue. When my mom went to residential school, she was not allowed to speak her language. And my mom actually couldn't speak even to her sisters or to anybody or couldn't understand anybody for a very long time because of that. And so we don't speak Cree or Dene anymore um, in my family, but it would be so great. Language revitalization is so beautiful, but I would love to say a prayer. I would love to end us off on this. So thank you creator so much that you are just present that every day we have mercies that we wake up to at sunrise and just we're just so thankful that we can start fresh and as Canadians this is a freshness where we can reconcile as church as the believers of God of Bible believing followers of Jesus May we do exactly like you would do, where we love one another. And so I pray that for the first people in Canada, First Nation, Métis, Inuit, where we would have a closer relationship with you, that all of the oppression that we have felt from the church, from bad representation of Christians, that there would be healing, that there would be reconciliation, that there would be shalom. And for the Indigenous peoples of Canada, we would see the true God, the true love that can be brought to us through the Bible, through relationship with Jesus. So thank you for this opportunity to speak and to share our history, to share our story, and to share the hope that we have in you and that as Indigenous people in Canada, we are going to move forward and we're going to see more and more that reconciliation. I really believe it and we agree on it in your powerful name. Hi, hi. Amen. Thank you, sister. Amen. Yes. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.